Today, I'm declaring it officially summer, which is why I'm wearing my favorite Hawaiian t-shirt, and because I'm a dad, I'm allowed to do this. Also, what is going on with the debt ceiling? What is the Federal Reserve expected to do in June? Five financial misconceptions that you probably should need to know. And lastly, what just happened with the explosion at the Pentagon? Bet you didn't even know about that last one, so let's get into it. Welcome back to The Wealthy Idiot Show. My name's AJ, and before we get into it, please make sure to hit that like button real fast. It helps us out tremendously. We could spread this information around, and in exchange, we'll make sure that you're as educated about personal finance as you could possibly be so that you could show off to all your friends that you know what you're doing and they don't, which is really what we're all here for, right? All right, so let's get into the news. First article, the U.S. will default on June 5th if death limit not raised, Treasury says. So we did kind of explain this last week that we don't think that the U.S. is going to default on its debt. They're making this argument as if there's not enough money to pay the interest on our loans, except that there is. It just is being spent in other places. And so if we go into a shutdown, what ends up happening is the government shuts down and still has to spend money on the things that it's required to spend money on. In fact, it's built into the system that they have to print money in order to cover for those things. So there is no default that's going to happen. This is kind of a scare tactic in order to get the people involved in making a deal here. And then both sides... Biden and McCarthy are uh, sitting there arguing over which one is not coming in good faith. And it looks like, and the reason I'm talking about it again is because A, there still is no agreement on the debt ceiling, but B, it looks like Biden and McCarthy are getting closer to make an agreement and the right side does not like the compromises and the left side does not like the compromises. So yeah, not exactly sure how that's going to end up. I'm sure that everybody will be unhappy about it and they'll be blaming the opposing parties, which might be great for all of them during their re-election cycle for the particular locations where, you know, it's a guaranteed one way or the other. So um, there's still no news here. So it, once we hear about it, we'll let you guys know. Next up, the Federal Reserve officials divided over future interest rates hikes minutes show. So the next time they're supposed to make an announcement about interest rates is the middle of June. We said before that it's about every six weeks they get together and decide what it's going to be. And to this point, they have been raising interest rates at every point, just a smidgen of a percent or like a like a fraction of a percentage. Right. So like 25 points, which is a quarter of a full percentage. And they've been doing that in order to try and prevent the economy from growing too quickly, causing an inflationary cycle. But it looks like they're not entirely sure if they should continue to do that. In fact, partway down the page here, central bank officials are uncertain whether to pursue further increases to the federal funds rate. According to minutes released Wednesday from the Fed's policy setting panels meeting earlier this month, many investors had hoped the Fed would offer hints to indicate that it would pause or even decrease the interest rates, but the meeting notes did little to indicate such with the Fed vowing to retain optionality with its monetary policy moving forward. Inflation remains unacceptably high, said the Fed on Wednesday, adding recent data shows inflation is cooling slower than expected. Right. So what this is saying is that they're a little bit worried because all, all they can do is kind of look at the market information and then make decisions about the data that they're receiving. But the data they're receiving is slow. So imagine like, you know, you're going to get April's unemployment numbers, but they're not coming out until partway through May. Right. Because the data is always lagging behind. So I think what they're worried about here is if they see inflation cooling, which it looks like it is, 
Like it's not raising anymore and it's kind of declining a smidgen. It's still high, but it's declining a smidgen. I think they're worried that, you know, they could be coming in for a soft landing and adding more to those interest rates could be like pushing that plane, you know, the pushing the plane like straight down, just like taking a nosedive right into the runway. So I don't think that they want to do that. So right now it looks like they're debating whether or not an interest rate increase should happen and a good chunk of them don't think that it should. So it doesn't really tell us what's going to happen in June, but it kind of gives us an indicator about what they're arguing about. And maybe we can start hitting the point where we maybe don't see any increases anymore for a while. Um, And then maybe at some point we could start seeing some decreases. That would be fun. I'd certainly like to see that. Next article, five misconceptions debunked. So CNN sat down and figured out five financial misconceptions. And so I obviously had to click on it. I'm like, what does CNN have to tell me about finances? And they're not all bad. So I was actually kind of impressed with CNN on this one. Um, So let's take a look. We can go through all five of them and I'll tell you what I think. First one is I funded a Roth IRA, so I'm all set for retirement. But did you select your investments? Kudos to you for taking the initiative to open that account. However, that's just the first step. If investments aren't selected, the money in the account will not grow beyond the interest you earn if your brokerage automatically stores the funds in a money market fund. So basically what we've said here on this channel, if you put your money into the into a 401k or a Roth IRA, that's like putting your money into an account. Now you have to use that cash that's in that account to go buy assets that are going to appreciate over time. Me personally, not financial advice, but I like index funds. So I tend to look for index funds or mutual funds that are kind of like index funds. And that's what I have in my 401k and Roth IRA. And I think that's what DC has as well. Um, But yeah, once you get the cash in there, you need to make sure you're also investing that so that it will grow over time. And then when you take those withdrawals, especially the Roth IRA, they're tax-free withdrawals you're going to want to make sure that you made money on that account before you start withdrawing that. Uh, The second point they make is all I need to do is save money to be rich. Sure, getting in the habit of saving is good, but being a good saver can only take your money so far. You have to consider other factors like inflation and the power of compound interest. In short, you may need to invest your money to build long-term wealth. That's what we say here as well. Um, Putting your money into anything is losing value. You're, it's it's immediately losing value. If inflation, like right now, it's like four something percent, four point nine percent, I believe, and the Federal Reserve wants it to be at two, like even at two percent, you're losing value every year, and that loss of value is compounding every single year. So unless you put it into something that's growing at least with inflation, you're losing money essentially in the long term. So what it's saying here is saving money may not be enough. And especially considering compound interest, if you have something that's returning like 10%, like the S&P 500, and you could put your money in there easily, like with index funds, and you could put it into a Roth IRA to avoid taxes when you start withdrawing stuff, you have all those options, you can grow 10%, 10%, and that compounding is going to grow to be significant wealth when you retire. Myth number three, every savings account is the same. I don't even think I have to read this one. That's pretty much true. High yield savings account will return better interest for you, but you got to go find a high yield savings account that's returning good interest. Apple just released a savings account. You have to have the Apple credit card to get it, but they released a savings account that has like four point something percent interest. I think E-Trade just announced that they're hitting 4%. Um, Schwab, I think, has something over 4%. So huge amounts. But like in your regular bank, in your savings account, I think mine is something like half to... 
is, is something like half to 1%. So I don't use the savings account in my bank because of that. So if you are going to put your money into something that's not an investment, that's savings, like let's say this is your emergency fund or cash that you're waiting to put into something like a real estate investment, not all savings accounts are the same and it's worth going and checking out. At one point in time, creating accounts were, was extremely difficult. Like you had to go to the bank and apply and set up the account and put money in. Today, you can get online and put money into accounts pretty easily and then transfer stuff back and forth pretty easily. And if the Fed comes out with that fast money thing that we were talking about a few weeks ago, um, we'll be able to transfer money between these institutions pretty much instantly. So at this point, there's really no excuse for not doing the research and then putting your money in the right place. Misconception number four, having more than one credit card is bad. So this is the one where I got to it and thought, I don't know. So I'll read this bit here and I'll, I'll give my point. If you're irresponsible with credit cards, that's true. You probably shouldn't have one. But if you used responsibly, however, having multiple credit cards can improve your credit score. That's because the amounts owed, your credit utilization ratio, makes up 30% of your credit score. So now this is true. The, the problem I have with like putting this into an article is that the beginning where it says, if you're irresponsible with credit cards, that's most people with credit cards. So you're talking to a really finite number of people who are good with credit cards. And then you're telling them that like having more credit cards might be better because your credit will be higher and your credit utilization then will be lower. Meaning that if you have like a hundred grand worth of credit card availability and you're using zero of it, it makes it look like you have tons of available credit that you're not using. Banks like to see that stuff on your credit score. So it is one way to get your credit score up. Me personally, I have just two credit cards, one um, American Express, which has like the best points and rewards. And the other one is a visa because some places don't take American Express. And that's pretty much it. And I just track those two and we keep those going. Um, and then what I can do is every six months, you're able to call your bank and ask them to increase the credit, um, available credit. And you can also ask them to decrease the interest rate. There's nothing against that. And if you can increase your available credit doing that, uh, I think I'd rather do that than try to open up a whole bunch of credit cards to kind of fake inflate my available credit. I don't like that one as much. Number five, talking about money is taboo. Personal finance is often made to be a complicated topic that's taboo to talk about. But the latter is the one reason why everyone thinks personal finance is so complicated. Nobody talks about it. And if you're lucky enough to learn it in school, there's a good chance it's outdated and riddled with personal opinions. Almost like you should find like a good YouTube channel whose goal is to make sure that you learn everything you need to know. They're not trying to sell you anything. They didn't make their profits off selling you courses or pretending like they know information. They actually did these things themselves and they're just here to share with you the information that they've learned to improve their financial um, literacy and their wealth overall. Maybe a couple of idiots, like people, you know, because it shouldn't be something that geniuses should be doing everybody should be like any idiot should be able to be doing this right and if we can do this like any idiot can do this and and they're wealthy maybe those are the people we should be listening to like and subscribe all right moving on to one of the most interesting things that happened this week and also one of the most unreported things this actually blew my mind when i heard about it because i didn't hear anything about this at all i found this today when i was doing the research so a viral image, something that was going around, I think predominantly Twitter, made it look like a huge explosion occurred right next to the Pentagon. And immediately following that, the S&P 500 fell by like $500 billion in cap because people panicked and thought like, uh oh, you know, something's happening End times are coming. Now officials are claiming and saying that this was an AI generated image. 
And so it's almost like there, there are a whole bunch of like credible news sources that reported about this event and actually showed the picture. And it's almost like verifying the news is no longer a thing anymore. Like you see this thing and you turn around and just blow it up. And now we hurt the economy about it. And people are, you know, arguing like this proves that AI, you know, may be a problem. And, you know, without the responsibility there, we could cause severe issues like this. And while I kind of agree, I am old enough to remember that we had this entire conversation back in the early 2000s when it came to Photoshop. Everyone's like, well, if you could Photoshop anything, then how are we going to be like in court talking about different things and people can show a Photoshopped image and prove you're guilty. And like that, that whole debate already occurred. And it turned out that we figured out most of those problems. It wasn't even that difficult. Same thing here. Like the duty here is not really on AI to ensure that they don't produce images that could be misused. The duty is really on the news outlets to verify what it is they're reporting on. You can't report something is true if all you saw was an image, right? So, I mean, yeah, this may have been an AI generated image, but it could have been a Photoshop generated image. Maybe the onus is on the people reporting and sharing this information to verify its truth before doing so. And uh, I think that's where the mistake was. So you got people like Elon Musk talking about how like AI is going to be out of control. Eh. Or maybe news outlets need to start doing their job. Let's start with that and then we'll move from there. That's it for the news segment today. Let's move over to our React. So while I promised I wouldn't always do Dave Ramsey React videos, I found a video that is not by Dave Ramsey. But... Dave Ramsey is in it. So we're going to check it out because this video, as it turns out, is probably one of the best arguments for what I've been saying here on this channel against Dave Ramsey this entire time. So you're going to have to watch it to see why this is such an amazing admission to, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pretend that he just straight up said, go like, and subscribe to Wealthy Idiots. That's I'm going to pretend that's what he said because it's basically, it's basically that. Let's check it out. Do you say debt is bad because for the average person, that is a good principle to live by? And with that, I kind of agree with you. However, if people do utilize debt in an effective way, such as Graham, he's very responsible, very well researched on you know the markets and how he can leverage his money with debt. Do you think that that is a more effective way to, to grow fast if you're calculated with it? To answer his question, if I'm going to pretend like he asked, he asked me the question, I wouldn't say that it's a, an effective way to grow your wealth fast. Everything is still slow, but I would say that it's faster than otherwise. Like if you weren't to use leverage at all, it would be much, much slower. A good example is what we talked about with, um, you know, when real estate investing and you put in, let's say the house increases in value 4% and you bought the whole house. So if you bought the whole house for hundred grand, it goes up 4%, you made $4,000. That's 4% return on your money. It's not great. Um, 4%, you know, like right now, it's not even beating inflation. So uh, let's say you put a down payment down to 25,000 and you borrowed the rest from the bank and it, the house grew at a 4%. So it appreciated 4%. That's $4,000. If you only put 25% down, that's $25,000. And $4,000 of $25,000 is 16%. So your money, because you get to keep all the appreciation, all $4,000, the bank gets none of that. And you only put 25 grand down you get a 16% return on your money. So it's a much, much better return. 16% doesn't mean you're like wealthy tomorrow or even the next day. It just means that compounding year over year, it's going to be greater in the long run. So I wouldn't say that it's fast. I would say that it is faster than, um, than not doing it. 
And then um, his statement about, you know, like if you're, you know, for most people taking out debt, because if you're taking out consumer debt, you can't handle having a credit card. You, this isn't the plan for you. But if you can, like if you are an investor, you're smart with your money, you are able to handle debt and you can actually look at the information to make the right decision. Why wouldn't debt make sense here? Right. Um, that's, and I think that's a valid question because I've asked that all the time and Dave's going to give us a great answer. It is a more effective way to grow fast if that's your goal. But what people leave out of the discussion is that you've increased your risk exponentially. More debt equals more risk, period. I think that's interesting that he said that because we often complain here that Dave often says debt is risk. Like, and we, and we give the example of like, if you're over here and it's conservative and then all of a sudden you take out like $1 worth of debt, Dave is like, it's all over here. It's the top risky. And we're like, isn't it kind of on a spectrum? Like, couldn't we take out debt and still be in this conservative space? Um, and he kind of admits that here. He says, you know, more desk, more debt equals more risk. I don't, I still don't think that that's true because if we have like, you know, a $50,000 income and we have $50,000 worth of debt, that's a lot of risk. If we have a million dollars worth of income and we have a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt, we have more debt technically, but I would say that's a lot less risky. Um, but then the inverse is that would mean less debt equals less risk, right? So if we can reduce the amount of debt that we have while still taking out enough to make sure that we get good returns, maybe that's more on the conservative side, kind of agreeing with what we argue here that this whole thing is actually on a scale. You know, after I went broke, I had to analyze and go, okay, what went wrong here? And because was it, see, I had never lost money on a flip. I was not behind on the notes. They just called them. Hmm. They had the ability to do that because it was commercial paper. It wasn't traditional mortgages. It was 90-day paper. So Dave here admits that this he is he didn't use standard mortgages. He used flip loans, which is not the same thing. And I don't think that he's ever said anywhere including in this video here if he knew that these loans could be called back at any time right i don't i don't think he's said that if he knew that and he risked it anyways i don't know but it is interesting to note that he had a specific plan that failed that one plan failed and then he swung all the way over to the other side of being like everything in between is now also not legitimate to do so like in my case if i'm buying investment properties and I use conventional mortgages, which I do, and I put down a pretty significant down payment, my concern is making that monthly payment. I have to make sure I can make that monthly payment, and I have to make sure I make it even if I don't collect all the income from the people that are staying there. In Dave's plan, he had to ensure that he covered all the debt, like every dollar, and he didn't have it because at the time, and he says he was 100% leveraged, right? So he didn't have any of that money. So these two things don't really equate to each other. What it amounted to was, and I, so I had proven track record of making money. I mean, I did. I, I probably owned 2,000 pieces of real estate in my life. And so I was doing a lot of flips. And some of them I was doing in 24 hours. You know, I would just buy them and flip them to another investor and make 10 grand and keep walking, you know, that kind of stuff. So, but I was doing 100% financed. Hmm. I didn't put any money in it. So, is it possible to do a real estate plan without doing flips? And without doing these financed flip loans, yes, it is. 
It's totally possible. In fact, we don't teach what Dave did before on this channel. We teach a much more conservative approach to real estate investing um, than even a lot of people not using Dave's method teach. So th this seems like a classic case of like, I went extreme surfing. Have you seen those videos where those people are like on mega waves and they have like a jet ski pulling them on these mega waves and they, they, you know, could essentially die if they screw up. So they're doing this extreme surfing and then they failed. And then they come back to the beach and they tell everyone nobody's allowed to go in the water anymore. Right? That's a terrible idea. There's risk in the water. And all the surfers who are just like riding the waves that are coming in on the beach are like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, there's risk to surfing, but like, we're just riding these waves. Like no one gets seriously injured out here. Like, why would you come and tell us that? That's how this feels. It's like, we did a real, we're doing really conservative things with real estate investing. Dave screwed up tremendously by doing some crazy stuff. And then he comes to us and he has the audacity to tell us that what we're doing isn't safe and we shouldn't be doing it. Or in some cases he calls people just plain stupid on his show who do and say the things that we say. So that's just crazy to me. But, you know, we got more to go. And so after I crashed, I kind of had to go through a CSI, you know, an autopsy. And mm -hmm. go, okay, why did the patient die? <laughs> well, the patient died because you had all these loans out that got recalled that you couldn't pay. So it would stand to reason that maybe if you were to do this again, you wouldn't take those same loans out. Maybe you would take loans out that can't be called back like that. Right? That, that makes sense. This doesn't equate to all debt being bad or all debt being risky. It just equates Dave's plan to being extremely stupid, which he admits it was, but it doesn't exclude the legitimacy of any other plan outside of Dave's plan. This is kind of a logical fallacy called uh, appeal to the stone, where you kind of say like, you know, this thing is dumb. It's obviously absurd, but you give no supporting arguments for it. So in his case, he's giving a supporting argument, but he's not giving an argument against the entirety of his statement, right? So the entirety of his statement is debt's bad. Don't take out debt, right? And then instead of proving that debt's bad, what he's doing is he's proving this one case is bad. That's it. So he's leaving the rest of it here for us to just assume that this is the case. You know, because everything I was taught, I grew up in the real estate business. And when, you, when you're in the real estate business as a profession, one of the rules is they take your risk meter out and they sit on the table and they break it. So you have no, you have no ability to perceive risk because everything's good. Everything's going up. And, you know, and, and, you know it always works. And uh, the, the mythology that just because something worked once, it's always going to work every time. So. So, so taking that argument, it would stand to reason that maybe we should just rebuild the risk meter. Maybe we should start calculating risk, right? So he's saying like, we don't calculate risk in real estate and that caused me to be destroyed. And so no more debt, right? Maybe the obvious answer is let's build a risk meter. Uh, I, I had to go through kind of a healing of my heart in that regard and go, oh, wait a minute, this is risk. Uh, oh, wait a minute, OPM, other people's money. Yeah, it's kind of got that get rich quick slimy vibe to it, you know, and all that. But there are people that intelligently more intelligently than that, use debt. And so there's a spectrum there. Hey, that's that's what I say. There's a spectrum. So Dave admits it. There's a spectrum. He's endorsed the wealthy idiots. That's it. Unsubscribe from Dave. Subscribe to the wealthy idiots. It's all you need from here on out. Dave endorsed us. No reason to watch them anymore. So, so basically, th this is the way that you should probably consider it, is you, you figure out, like, what is... 
um, the amount of risk and also what is the amount of return. Then you figure out ways to mitigate that risk. So that could be things like, you know, emergency funds specifically for your property or other assets in case that property reduces in value and you are stuck trying to sell it or trying to recover value somehow. There are ways to mitigate that. And then once you kind of figure out what your risk is and what your return is, it gives you enough information to decide, like, does this make sense? You could also still taking out a loan, like, you know, in my previous example, instead of 25%, maybe you go 50%. So less risky. That would mean that the housing market would have to drop 50% for you to be in a place where you're in trouble, right? And 2008 kind of did that for like a blip. And then it came back pretty quickly. Just within the next year or two, like you would have had your value back pretty fast. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal. And even Dave says now, like there, there shouldn't be any case where values go down that tremendously. It just shouldn't happen. But even if it did, let's say we had 50% loan on that and we bought other assets. So we have plenty of buffer. So we have very little risk, but we're also getting a much, much higher return than if we went all cash in. Seems like that's how we should be thinking of this. But even those are taking on risk. Mm, interesting. So he makes sure to clarify at the back end there that um, debt is still always taking on risk. So risk is the thing that we're trying to avoid at all costs. That's important to note because he's going to say something in a minute. So keep that in the back of your mind. Buffett says when the, uh, when the tide goes out, you can tell who's skinny dipping. So when you stress test with an economic problem of some kind, uh, outside variable or inside variable, inside your organization or your life, inside your portfolio, or the economy, like a, a quarantine type thing comes up, or uh, inflation or mm -hmm. recession, and you stress test your theories, um, you know, you can tell who's skinny dipping. So he answered his own question, right? He's like... There's risk. We don't calculate risk in real estate. It's not there. Um, you could stress test it and you'll see who's skinny dipping. All right, well, let's stress test our theories and then make sure that we're ready for any event like that to happen. In fact, I wonder if there's like an event that occurred recently, like maybe circa 2008 that we could use to try and determine if we're doing safe things in the real estate market. If only there was an event like that. Sounds like Dave gave us the answer. We, we already know it. And uh, you, you, if your theories don't last. And so the only one I've ever found, and this comes back to my faith journeys where it started, the borrower slave to the lender. I can find nowhere in Scripture that debt was used to bless people. So can you see what's happening yet? I know that I'm pausing a lot and I'm telling you a lot of stuff, but can you see what's happening with his arguments here? He's, he's kind of going around in these circles. Like he's not really landing on the thing that he should be explaining to us. Like why is Graham Stephan, like why should he not be doing what he's doing? Why should AJ not be doing what he's doing? Like he's not hitting on any of that. He's just talking all the way around it, right? And then in this one, it bugs me a little bit because he's right. There's nowhere in scripture that says like, you know, this is how to use debt correctly in order to make a bunch of money. But it also doesn't say anywhere that debt is inherently bad, immoral, or evil. It doesn't say that anywhere. In fact, the only thing it gives us is what Dave constantly talks about, which is the warning that debt you know, the debtor is slave to the lender, meaning that like, be very careful with debt because if you're not, you're in trouble, right? That's what, that's essentially what's happening. It's a warning telling us to be careful with debt. That's the only thing you can find. So it's interesting that he goes there and he, and he still can't really nail down, you know, this no debt philosophy that he has. Like it's still not even in the Bible. 
got a degree in finance yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know how to run an IRR, you know, yeah. and I know what the IRR looks like without with with uh, with debt and without debt. And it's not nearly as good unless you're leveraged, but you can run an IRR through the roof with leverage. Mm-hmm. Guess what's left out of the IRR calculation? There's no math inserted for risk. Ooh. So IRR stands for internal rate of return, and it's the calculation used to measure the effectiveness of a particular investment. So we kind of did an example on the show, and I'll link to it this side, link to it up above, and um, where we kind of showed that it is possible to have like infinite money returns in real estate that you never like you don't have to put your own money in and you could effectively pull money out until forever. Um, and that's essentially what he was doing originally. But at the end of the video or the second half of that video, we went over the risks involved in doing it that way because there are risks involved in doing it that way. Right? So he's not wrong. The IRR looks great. It does not consider risk and you could essentially print your own money using real estate. But, um, yeah, that comes with a lot, a lot of risk and we don't recommend doing that either. And so while you see this great rate of return, there's zero risk showing up in there. The chance that you lose the thing or the chance that the stress brings on your life or what it does to your marriage or what it does to your body to carry around the weight of that. None of that is parlayed into there. And real estate is unique in that way because other investment vehicles teach us to mathematically insert risk. For instance, two mutual funds, you would never compare an aggressive growth stock mutual fund with a with a growth in income okay and if you look at the chart you know the growth in income is kind of like this and the aggressive growth is like this right? right and that's the risk factor like i often so for the first half of that i often talk about how like dave he considers risk or dave considers debt the worst possible thing because that's the thing that destroyed his financial plan it broke his family like it was a stress on him that ended up ruining his body but i've also pointed out like what about the stresses of being dependent on a specific job right like what if that's your only source of income and if the economy starts to dive and you have no other source of income what's what are you going to do right and he encourages people essentially to become house poor buying houses because he's like that's an investment but then you can't take out debt against your house if you need it and you can't uh, refinance it and you can't like, I mean, and he tells you to pay it off early. So you're kind of in his plan, you're kind of all dependent on the single employer. And that comes with an amount of risk and tension, and it could destroy your family as well. So there are a lot of things that could happen in this world that could cause that stress on you. And he picks one, but doesn't really address the others. So that's always have, that's always bothered me, right? Like you got to look at the whole picture there and look at everything in order to determine like, you know, what's the proper plan? Like, what's the thing we should be stressing about and when? The, the second thing I want to point out is the second half. And I told you to remember the fact that he said debt is risk. And then he just said mutual funds have risk and we can measure the risk, right? So it turns out that Dave does buy things with risk. So risk isn't the thing to avoid at all costs, as it turns out. And I understand that mutual funds and real estate is not the same, but it's kind of on Dave to explain the difference between the two risks then, right? It's not my job. I'm not the one who claimed that. He's the one who claimed that. But he's also making an argument for what I'm saying and what I'm going to say at the end of this video as to what should be done. And and, uh, we'll get there. I don't want to give it all away yet. And the highs and lows on that, you all probably know this is called, for our, but for our audience at home, the, the change, the rapid change is measured by a thing called a beta. 
and a beta is a statistical measure of risk. It's a math number. And so a beta of 1.0, for those at home, means that that particular mutual fund is exactly what the stock market is. It's S&P 500. It's doing what the stock market's doing. A beta of 2.0, it means it's twice as risky. So this is an aggressive growth emerging market type stock fund portfolio. And so it's twice as risky as the market. So you would the way you would adjust for risk between a beta of a 0.8, which might be like a growth in income, versus a beta of 2.0, is you insert the beta in an inverse in the math formula and you adjust for risk. So you can compare these two apples to apples, even though after risk, a post-risk analysis. We don't do that in real estate. No one ever talks about that in real estate. It doesn't even come up. And so if you, but we have kind of a brain and our brain says, oh, wait a minute, if I'm a 110% leverage in real estate, that's probably not good, you know? Uh, that's the end of the video. So Dave right there gave us one of the most, you know, strong endorsements that I think anybody could possibly give. He just made an incredible argument for using debt to invest as long as you're calculating and considering the risk or the worst case scenarios, which is what we talk about here on this channel. Take what you have, what your plan is. Now, what would happen with your plan in an event like 2008? Like the housing values dropped, your stocks dropped in value. You couldn't get as much income because rents dropped, right? If that all occurred, what would your position look like? Would you still be able to float it? Would you have enough assets, even though they dropped, like maybe in the S&P 500 index funds, would you have assets there that you could use? Do you have cash there that could float you for like a year? Because, you know, stuff came, started coming back almost immediately. When you dollar cost average, it only took people like six to eight months to bounce back when they were dollar cost averaging, right? So the, the risk is basically, can you survive a year if that were to occur? right? And that's just then. So maybe we extend it. So we're like, if you could survive a year in 2008, maybe we say we want to be able to survive two years. And instead of a 50% drop, we're going to calculate a 75% drop. How would that look? And if you still look good, it turns out that maybe it's a good investment and the return still looks good. Cause at some point the return starts, stops looking as good, right? Like if you were to put 25% down on the real estate, you would get, um, you know, 16% returns if you have like an average of 4% appreciation. But if you put 50% down, you only get 8% returns, right? So if you put 100% down, you only got 4% returns. You see how that works? So if we're going to put 50% down, um, then we got to start considering things like, is the cash flow going to be good enough? And combining the cash flow with the expected appreciation, maybe our investment looks like a, you know, 12% return. Is it worth 12% return um, to put all this effort in when the index funds right now are at like 11 and a half on average per year, like maybe not, maybe we just go index funds. But if you do all the work, you figure out how to be safe, you put it all in and you're like, oh, this is a 21% return and I'm safe. Well, now that's significant. That's like 10% above the index funds, above the S&P 500, it might become worth it. But all of that has to do with what Dave just argued for so passionately, which is it's okay to take risk if the risk is calculated and thought through, which is what we argue here on this channel. So thank you, Dave, for supporting the Wealthy Idiots. We super appreciate it. We hope you like and subscribe. And I'm talking to Dave here. Please like and subscribe to the Wealthy Idiots. And uh, I don't know, maybe we'll change his mind at some point, but probably not. All right, let's get into the last segment here. So something has been kind of, you know, 
itching at me in the back of my head. And there's stuff that people say that really bother me. And we've covered a few of them. And one of them is um, not including dollar cost averaging when doing comparisons. So we did some, and I'll, I'll link to them around here somewhere. And uh, someone made the comparison, like if you had a million dollars in you know, this and you had a million dollars in this, and then you know, over time, this is how it looked. And they didn't consider dollar cost averaging. Right. And so they're like, if you have an average of 2% return over here and it never goes down, you're doing great. But if you have it over here, it goes up and down a whole bunch. You're not doing so good. Well, yeah, but like if you're, if we're investing every month, every paycheck, every year, even just consistently over time, we're going to catch those times where the market comes down. And by doing that, it's lowering our average. Right. So that's not addressed by a lot of these people who are touting different things like whole life in um, IUL, Index Universal Life, um, are just poor investments generally. One of the other things that they do is they assume that we both start at the same spot, right? So if you have a million dollars in whole life and you have a million dollars in index, or if you have a million dollars in your investments and you have a million dollars in index universal life, this is how it goes. The problem with that is that no, with pretty much any investment outside of life insurance, you will have significantly more. So I I decided to kind of draw these things out because I I saw a video recently where the guy said this. It's a simple formula called the rule of 72. So this formula will tell you how long it will take for something to double based on the rate in which it is growing. In the investing world, they use this to figure out how long it'll take for your money to double, right? Let me give you the formula real quick. Just take the number 72 and divide it by the rate in which your money is growing. That will tell you how long it's going to take for your money to double. For example, If I have $100,000 and I'm earning 6% on that money, I take 72, I divide it by six, and that equals 12. That means $100,000 will grow to $200,000 in 12 years if I earn 6% every year. Now, of course, those numbers work in a vacuum. It assumes no negative years, no negative years. Like, it assumes no negative years. So this guy is online. And we've, we've responded to him before and I ask him questions that he just doesn't respond to. Like he can't, he can't answer these questions. And I've even reviewed some of his videos and he says things and he touts himself as being like a financial person. Like, you know, we, we joke, like I I have the joke running on my channel about my name or my title. I'm a financial, whatever, because these guys give themselves their own titles. So he claims to be like someone you should listen to for financial information. And he sells whole life to people. And then he says something like this this, that makes zero sense at all. Right. And we talked about, you know, a few weeks ago, and I'll I'll link to it again. Like I got all these links here for you about how they make the mistake of misunderstanding how averages work when it comes to returns. And we did the math for you. And people will say things like, you know, oh, well, if you lose 50%, like if you have a hundred grand, you lose 50%, you only have 50 grand. And if you gain 50% back, that's only uh, $75,000 because now you've lost it. As if they don't understand how actual investing averages work. You don't do the math that way. And then he says something like this, assuming no negative years. No, if you have averages of 6% growth, it doesn't matter if you have negative years. In fact, those negative years probably will increase that 6% up to like 10%, right? With the dollar cost averaging, like we said before. So I decided to make a graph, a couple of graphs, so you could see the difference between how these guys think it is and how it really is so that you can understand why you should not be listening to them. So let's get into that. So here's the first graph. This is, um, so uh, for those who are listening on the podcast, um, the gray line here shows the amount of money that you put in. In this case, it's an even um, amount of money 
I, don't, I think I put in even $1 million, right? And so it's just a straight line all the way across. The blue line is whole life. And so you see the blue line dip beneath the gray line because when it first starts off, you're going to be paying significantly more in fees than you get in returns. And if you know anything about compound interest, that's the backwards thing you want to have happen. You don't want to have your, your compounding start after you've been investing for seven plus years, right? Because compounding means like your dollar today grows over time. But if you're losing money at the start, you're losing years off of that compounding, which is important. Every year is more important the further away you get. And so this destroys it. So it makes no sense at all. And then the green line, you see a jagged green line kind of following the blue line up. This is what I think that they think this stuff looks like. They're like, oh, look, the green line like dip below the blue line here. And that's the negative year, you know, assuming no negative years, like that means nothing, right? So to show you the contrast, I'm going to show you what actually happened in the S&P 500 and what his, his own, um, plan, like one of his own described whole life plans does against the actual market in the S&P 500. You could see, I'm going to switch over. Here you go. <laughs> this is what actually occurred. So now at the beginning, you can't tell because it's so small, but the um, gray line is the amount of money we put in and we put in money over time because you know that's realistic. We don't just put in a million dollars and leave it there. We put in money over time, right? And same thing, blue line, putting money in over time because we're going to assume we're putting in money into whole life. So the blue line just looks a little bit above the gray line, just a sliver above the gray line. And it actually dips below the gray line at the beginning, like we were saying. And our green line kind of goes up above this blue line and then kind of continues to grow. And in fact, after 30 years, we're so far above that gray and blue line that it's not even funny. And we're in a dip right now. You can even see the dip on this graph at the end. And so like, instead of having, you know, with his plan, instead of having less than a million dollars and being like, yay, I have less than a million dollars, you would have over $3 million if you just invested your money in the S&P 500. And that's including the recent dip, right? So negative years don't matter in this case, because it, it's an average over time of growth. You're going to have negative years that's going to drag you down and you're going to have years that are positively way above that average of 10% or in his case, 6% as his argument, right? So it, I feel like there's just something in their brains that hasn't really understood how this compounding process works with dollar cost averaging because they say things like this that are just so confusing and then people buy into it because they're, they're expecting this person to be an expert. They're like, this person is saying this thing and so maybe like I should listen to them and then you go purchase a product from them. And I don't think that he's really being dishonest. I think he actually believes what he's saying. He just doesn't understand it. And then as a result, people are being damaged pretty significantly because of this, right? So like I gave this argument maybe last week or two weeks ago, but like the entire financial industry does not recommend you use life insurance as an investment vehicle because it doesn't make sense. And their argument here is like, oh, the financial industry doesn't want you to know about this. This isn't something that you, they want, you should be interested in or like you should even look at. And you're going to sit there and tell me that a financial advisor who, who believes that this actually works wouldn't be turning around and selling this to people so that they could make profit? Of course they would. Or 
alternatively, maybe it's possible that we've all looked at this stuff and been like, this doesn't make any sense. When you look at real numbers and compound interest over time, this is just killing people's gains over the long run, just destroying it. You're paying huge fees and they'll be like, oh, like these insurance companies are so much more stable than banks, right? Well, of course they are. They have all the money. So because they're taking it from you and they're not giving very much of it back. All right, so I'll get off my high horse for the rest of today. I appreciate you guys listening. If you have any questions, toss them down below. I know we covered a lot, but I love being able to share and talk to, uh, about this stuff with you guys. If you hit us up on wealthidiots.com, we get, uh, post articles regularly. Got great information and calculators there for you to check out. And before you take off, make sure to hit that like button real fast. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'll see you guys next time.